Good evening, Dharma friends. <clears throat> Can you all hear me? Great. So the title of my talk is Sacred Space and Transformation, Trusting the Process. And I kind of trusted the process of putting this talk together. (laughs) I just um, wanted to reflect back to you a little of what I've been seeing in the last three weeks as a way to just deeply bow to all of your processes. You know, I've been sitting in on interviews and have been able to offer a few interviews and it's so interesting, the mix of deep insight and many times not even realizing that it's insight and then deep delusion right next to it. (laughs) (laughs) And of course it was incredibly familiar with what's going on right now and here too. (laughs) So um, it just made me reminded me of um, other ceremonies that I have participated in because to me this is like one of the most intense ceremonies anyone could ever do. Think about it. Six weeks of silence, doing this practice of opening to, you know, opening to things that Maybe we've been shoving down for a while or six weeks or three months of doing that. And I want to say that, you know, the space feels very energized by the sacred practice that you've all been doing and that we have all been engaging in. You know, we were talking about it even in the um, SDR, the staff dining room, Tonight, you know, actually the teachers were talking about coming into this space and just being very impacted by it. It tenderizes the heart and just, it's a very sacred thing. And it reminds me of this other ceremony that I used to do. I probably, uh, this ceremony is called the Sundance and I probably went to the Sundance for maybe 10 years on the Pine Ridge Reservation in Juan Bly, South Dakota. I probably danced it for five years and probably went for 10. And I just feel like there's a lot of similarities between the two. You know, one similarity is that at the beginning of the Sundance, Well, first of all, you know, you had to take um, a vow that uh, the month before the Sundance, that's when the the ceremony started. So you would renounce certain, um, certain, you know, uh, pleasures in order to get ready for for the experience. And then you would get to Wan Bli about a week before the dance would start in order for the community to come together. 
and we would uh, paint little sticks, little sticks about this high and put a little tobacco tie, one tobacco tie on the top end of it. And we would create a perimeter around this area. And that's where the dance would be. And then there would be a little lean-to on one side that all of the dancers would uh, rest, you know, during, during the dancing time. And once the dance started, there, you know, you couldn't go in and out of the circle. You know, you entered the circle and then you stayed there until the end of the dance. And the dance was four days and... Um, if you if you felt like you were up to dancing four days, you would enter on the first day. But if you felt like you wanted to do less than that, you could enter on the second day, the third day, or the last day, depending on you know how much you felt you needed to or wanted to offer to the community. So what would happen is um, there would be maybe four or five drum groups around the periphery of the circle and. They would take turns singing. I'm sure you've heard native music, Lakota music. And uh, the dancers would, dancers would come out at sunrise and they would dance for maybe two or three hours without stopping. And then there would be a break and they would go back under the arbor and rest for maybe an hour. And then they would come back and you know dance another two or three hours. And this would happen until the sun went down. This was in, you know, the height of summer, or it still is. I mean, it's still going on every year. Usually the last, the full moon in July is when it starts. And it's known as a um, purification ceremony for the people who are dancing and for the larger community and the world. And you can feel the... um, you can feel the energy build up in it. You know, um, when I started dancing, I was already a meditator. And I remember once um, starting to dance, you know, getting all, you know, the women wear similar dresses and the men wear, you know, similar uh, loincloths, long loincloths. And we were all, you know, dancing out to start the dance. And I thought to myself, I'm going to do dancing meditation. And I couldn't even get out the word, I'm going to. And there was like this force that stopped me. It was like, no, you don't have to do anything else but this. This is its own ceremony. And it was just the most incredible presence. You know, you had to be present. There was just something about it. There was not a lot of mind wandering or there was not a lot of, you know, even I'm dancing or look at me, I'm a sun dancer. It was really just being in that moment and joining into creating sacred space in order to do our own purification and to do that for the community and even much more broadly. And, you know, I see that here. All of you have made 
I'm sure all of you have made probably major sacrifices to be here. You know, you've come and put your, probably with the grace of your families and maybe your work or maybe you took time off work or school to be here. You know, that's not a small thing to do. And uh, I just want to really bow to your commitment and what you have created here. It's really very beautiful. It's very wakan, very sacred. So, uh, and in the Sundance that we do, you know, the first day is tree day. The community comes together and gets everything ready. We put up the arbor and we create the spirit world and the regular world. And I feel like, boy, this is the spirit world right here. And... um, I mean, even just coming to the Insight Meditation Society, don't you all feel it? I call it the mothership. It's like the sacred tree is already here and we're dancing around it. On the second day of the Sundance, you know, things happen on each of the days. On the second day, they let ill people, people who are sick and very small children they actually bring them into the center of the, of the arbor and the dancers dance around them and bless them. Because, you know, the energy is thought to be really healing. So I'm going to smudge myself on you right now. <laughs> All of that great healing energy. Smudge yourself on each other. Mm. It's there. I know you can feel it. And then on the third day of the Sundance, Mara comes in. What happens is a few clowns get dressed up as Hoyokas or clowns. And they'll come in and they'll dance around with like a bucket of water. Oh, I didn't tell you, during the Sundance, there's no food and no water for four days. There's actually probably about four ounces of water in the morning because I think we would probably not make it if we went that many days without food and water. So in the morning, we start the day before the sunrise with a sweat lodge, one for the men and one for the women. And... um, it's so funny. There'll be one bucket and one dipper of water and the, and the sweat leader will put the dipper in the water and he'll, he or she will say, okay, take a sip and pass it around. What do you think the dancers do? <laughs> they just totally gulp the whole thing because, you know, you're really wanting water after dancing for that long and that amount of heat. So, you know, in that way, I think it has an analogy to what we're doing here, too, about uh, coaching ourselves, you know, coaching ourselves on our cushions. And as we do our walking meditation, and as we are mindful uh, throughout the day, you know, we, we are our own guides about how well we're doing, aren't we? And that's true of the Sundance as well. If you need to take a, 
you know, sit out maybe a uh, round of dancing, then, you know, that's advice to do. You know, it's thought that a lot of wisdom comes up during the dance and that you should follow that intuitive awareness. As intuitive awareness arises, you know, that's what you should really pay attention to because that's really where the truth is. But on the third day, the the clowns come in and they come in with a bucket of water and a ladle and they dance around and they'll pick up the water and they'll throw it on the ground and throw it on the, you know, on the feet of the dancers who are just incredibly thirsty. Just as an example of, you know, this is your deepest desire at this moment. So I wonder if I was Mara, what I would, what I would shake in front of you. A hamburger? (laughs) (laughs) What is your deepest desire at this moment? Maybe it's to be free. So on day three, Mara comes in and the clowns dance around with the water and the ladles and they tempt us. And then on the fourth day, at the end, many of you probably know that on the fourth day, some of the men will actually put spikes through their chest and tie to the tree and they'll dance up and back three times and on the fourth time they'll dance up and then they'll run back and they will you know, have that offering. They will, you know, offer that flesh for their own purification and the purification of the community and beyond. And then, you know, the community, you know, realizes at that point, you know, there's people dancing within the circle and then there's hundreds of people who dance outside of the circle. They're there as supporters. And they are dancing, you know, the, uh, the same amount of time the dancers inside the circle are dancing. But, you know, they can go back to their camp and have water and food. So they're not offering the um, same amount of sacrifice, I guess, at that moment. And, you know, even dancing or, you know, the place of dancing outside the circle is also a very sacred place because, you know, we're offering support and acknowledgement and encouragement for those people inside. And I think that there's probably a, um, you know, we can reflect that all of the people who are supporting us as we're here are those dancing outside our circle. You know, they've let us take some time away from our family duties or our work duties or even our sangha duties to be here. So they are are dancing with us. They are practicing with us. Their generosity allows us to be here. And you know who else is dancing on the outside? All the staff here. Oh my gosh. You know, I got to tell you, I crowdsourced this Dharma talk, so probably much of the stuff I'm going to tell you, they told me earlier today or yesterday. There's a huge amount of wisdom in uh, 
the people who, who live here and serve in this way. And uh, they're dancing with us. They're dancing on, in the periphery and providing that wonderful, you know, that sacred space. They're holding up the periphery for us as we do this. So on the last day, at the end of this beautiful ceremony, the community all lines up outside. And you know, by that time, by the end of the dance, there's probably three or 400 people there dancing on the outside. And everybody lines up and you know, bows their head and the dancers one by one walk past the line and bless the people. And it's a real, I mean, you can feel the energetic hit of just the momentum of compassion and clarity that has been developed over four days of the dance. And what I think is so beautiful about this is that, you know, there's a transmission there that happens. And I just want to, you know, bow to you guys because, you know, that's such a beautiful ceremony. And this ceremony is just as meaningful. For me right now, this is my main ceremony, this practice. Intensive practice is a, you know, a huge gift to yourself and to everyone in your life. So I just want to really honor that. If I could, you know, I would walk around and shake every one of your hands and bless myself. It feels like that. And we know that, you know, even as it's so beautiful and so meaningful, it's intensive practice is also a very, very humbling experience. Does anybody feel humbled? Is anybody thinking, oh my gosh, what is going on in there? Yeah, it's like, wow. There's this one, uh, you know, wonderful teachings of the Buddha of something called the Vipalasas. I'm sure you, many of you know about the distortions of perception. You know, the distortions of uh well, the first one is a distortion of perception. To see a stick and, and to think it's a, sni- a snake. Or to see something that is unsatisfactory as satisfactory. Have you, ever, have you done that at all in the last six weeks or three months? Have you thought, wow, if I could just get a piece of that chocolate over there, all my wanting will be gone. And then with this strong mindfulness, we can see that we can go over and have the chocolate and just be with the chocolate and enjoy it for what it has to offer. And then realize, wow, I guess that wasn't as beautiful as I thought it was. (laughs) Has anyone ever, has anyone had that? (laughs) Or was it just me? (laughs) 
And then, you know, uh, the distortions of that perception of seeing things that are impermanent as permanent or seeing things as satisfactory that aren't really satisfactory or seeing identities arise that are not really identities and seeing things as beautiful that aren't really beautiful. Seeing those distortions and seeing them clearly, it's very, very sobering, isn't it? There's layers to this self-deception that we're uncovering here and that you have willingly come on retreat to uncover. That's such a wholesome thing and it's not easy to do. Layers of self-deception. But it's so useful for me to see the layers of self-deception, to take uh, views, you know, how the vipalasas work is, you see, you have a perception of something that's incorrect and that informs incorrect thoughts. And, you know, if you don't have anything like mindfulness to really check the validity or the truthfulness of these uh, perceptions and thoughts, they harden into views. And wow, seeing the views that we have, that we take to be knowledge. You know, these views that are built up on, you know, at least this one lifetime of, you know, sitting in a particular place and thinking that, you know, we know how the world works and taking it to be the truth of things. For me, seeing that, seeing that amount of of distorted perception and thoughts and view, it made me realize, wow, this practice has got to be 24-7. You know, this practice is not just on the cushion because, you know, if we're seeing the truth of, you know, what's happening in this heart-mind when, you know, our mindfulness is so strong and our mental factors are so strong, what is it like when, you know, we haven't been sitting for six weeks or three months? How clearly can we really be seeing? Boy, that is really scary to me. And just made me think that this practice is a lifelong practice and we, you know, for me, it's always checking checking in to see you know, whether my perception is true or not. And, you know, if we're not seeing reality, then our perception isn't really that clear. If we're taking things to be satisfactory that are conditioned things, if we're taking things to be permanent, if we're taking empty phenomena to have some reality besides that, we're not seeing clearly in any moment. So how do we create sacred space 
here and, you know, in, in our life in general? How do we check in to make sure that we are making decisions and investing in our life in the best way that we can in things that are actually going to, you know, pay off for us? It sounds like a really kind of crass cost-benefit analysis here, but what did Joseph say that the Buddha taught, if you do this, you'll get that, or, you know, cause and effect. And there's some really good news about that. There's this one passage of the Samyutta Nikaya that says, that what the Buddha teaches is only one handful of leaves. It seems very complicated, doesn't it, sometimes, when we're all confused. It's like, well, what's happening at this moment? What am I supposed to remember? You know, what am I supposed to be doing now? And the Buddha taught that all he is offering is one handful of leaves. So this is what... um, Uh, Buddha Dasa says about that. A passage from the Samyutta Nikaya makes that clear. While walking through the forest, the Buddha picked up a handful of fallen leaves and asked the monks who were present to, to decide which was the greater amount, the leaves in his hand or the leaves in the forest. Of course, they all said that there were more leaves in the forest, forest, that the difference was beyond comparison. Try to imagine the truth of this scene, of this scene. Clearly see how huge the difference is. The Buddha then said that similarly, those things that he had realized were a great amount, equal to all the leaves in the forest. However, that which was necessary to know, those things that should be taught and practiced were equal to the number of leaves in his hand. I mean, to me, that is really a very uh, reassuring thing to know that there's not a lot of concepts and lists and, I mean, the lists are useful for reflection, but, you know, we don't really need to know, uh, you know, the physics of matter or anything like that. He taught a few very basic things that if we practice them, you know, if we know them conceptually, if we know how to practice with them um, with mindfulness, and if we come to understand them or realize them, you know, we can be free. We can have an end to our suffering. So here's another um, Buddha Dasa quote. Or maybe it's actually Bhikkhu Bodhi. Spiritual progress depends on the emergence of five cardinal virtues. Yeah, this is Bhikkhu Bodhi. This is good stuff right here. Spiritual progress depends on the emergence of five cardinal virtues. Faith, vigor, mindfulness, concentration, and wisdom. The conduct of the ordinary worldling is governed by his sense-based instincts and impulses. But as we progress, new spiritual forces gradually take over 
until in the end the five cardinal virtues dominate and shape everything that we do, feel, and think. These virtues are called in Sanskrit or Pali, Indriya. Uh, They're also called the five spiritual faculties or the five powers, the five controlling faculties. The qualities that exercise the function of faculties are of humble origin, appearing initially in mundane roles in the course of our everyday lives. So these are qualities that we all already have. You know, they're not qualities of the bodhisattvas. They're not even qualities of a sun dancer. They're the qualities that everyone carries around and has readily available to them. In these humble guises, they manifest as trustful confidence in higher values, as vigorous effort towards the good, as attentive awareness, as focused concentration, and as intelligent understanding. And you know, we can all see that we have these in our lives and we can see other people that have them. You know, everyone has these five qualities. Even those of us who are you know, uh, special needs people. We're all special needs people. (laughs) Around our um, clinging and the things that we can't see, we're special needs people. And we are all in the closet over something or another. We're in the closet of, you know, feeling that it's so difficult to just reveal what we're seeing inside of us. I mean, You know, intensive practice is very humbling. So the first quality is confidence or faith. Confidence, faith, or belief. This is what Soyang Mifam Rinpoche says about it. There is a sacredness to everyone's life. In order to relate to it, you have to build confidence. Because of this need to build confidence, we speak of warriorship. There's a tremendous amount of fear in people's lives. I think it's based on not wanting to reveal oneself. We're always protecting ourselves. So the journey of meditation and the journey of Shambhala is one has to be fearless. One has to be brave. One must break out of the world which is comfort-oriented. You know, one thing that was said in the staff dining room was that, you know, all of these things that we see inside of us, there's a, I think um, Garrett said it. Is it Garrett? (laughs) He said that we were talking about what we see in intensive practice, just the clinging and the stories and the identities based on our childhoods, based on the futures that we want to have you know, based on wanting to be a good meditator, wanting to be an enlightened person, you know, wanting to have enough wisdom to be recognized for it or whatever. And, um, you know, there's a, there comes a shift when we realize that all of that that we're seeing in ourselves, that's not personal. That's going on in every, everybody else as well. 
you know, all that we're seeing, we're all special needs people. We all have uh, attention deficit and depression and anxiety and one diagnosis or another. It's not personal. And there's a great comfort in realizing that, that all of the defilements are not personal. And then we have to see clearly that the wisdom isn't personal either. The insight is not personal either. So, you know, one thing about this aspect of confidence or faith that gets, um, you know, with our practice, it, 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 it goes from a kind of a mundane characteristic to part of MAGA, part of the path force that really propels us and drives us forward. And, you know, when it changes over from being kind of a mundane to a, to a special spiritual faculty or controlling faculty, that's when, you know, we actually can hold confidence and faith for other people as well. You know, people see that, and sometimes that is, becomes their faith and their desire to start the practice as well. I mean, I'm sure many of you are the most stable, the most insightful, the most available and compassionate people in many of the circles that you live in. People depend on you. And that's a wonderful thing. It's wonderful to manifest that. Actually, there's a sutta that says, the Buddha said, just as a large banyan tree on level ground where four four roads meet is a haven for the birds all around, even so a lay person of conviction is a haven for many people, for monks and nuns, for male followers and female followers, and even our trans brothers and sisters too. That's not in the sutta, but (laughs) we know that that's true. (laughs) <laughs> and uh, our other gendered, gendered relatives. So, it's also the beginning of our refuge practice. You know, when we have that faith and confidence, when we can feel it, it really drives our refuge. When, you know, we become disenchanted when we see that piece of chocolate or that cup of tea or that Vipassana romance, or that Vipassana vendetta, that it really is, you know, empty of any real existence. You know, what do we have? This confidence is the beginning of our refuge in something that can hold us, that catches us when these other things, you know, disintegrate as any real comfort or refuge for us. So the second spiritual power is vigorous effort towards the good. It's effort towards the good on the mundane level, but energy, diligence, enthusiasm, or effort when we build it up into a spiritual power. 
And I'm, I'm sure that you have felt that. It feels like momentum, right? It's like you don't even have to. Sometimes you have to. Sometimes we have to, you know, uh, muster the uh, effort to go forward. And other times we can just feel the momentum of the practice just unfolding in front of us. And it really doesn't feel like any personal effort whatsoever. We can really feel it as one of these spiritual faculties. This faculty controls laziness. And it, um, it actually provides the um, momentum for us to practice not only just on the cushion, but throughout all parts of our lives, both here on retreat and outside. And it's really wonderful to actually see it and acknowledge it. Because when you see these wholesome qualities that seem just to be arising from the path itself, from Maga itself, you know, we actually support and water these qualities when we see them. And for me, how this manifests is that um, I have, you know, most of my life is organized around my various sanghas. You know, I have a sangha that meets at my house, a people of color and allies sangha. I love the local Seattle Insight Meditation Sangha. Um, You know, we have a Sangha of people in the teacher training, many of which are in this room, who I absolutely adore and have deep love and confidence and faith in, who have taught me a lot. Confidence in, um, you know, so Sanghas are one way that Um, my effort is manifest. That that's how I surround my, you know, that's how I um, arrange my life. And I want to tell you about this one friend of mine. She's actually one of those Sundancers. She's a really important person in the Sundance, actually. Her name is Lupe Avila. And not only does she go to the Sundance, she's probably gone, you know, schlepped all the way from the San Francisco Bay Area out to, you know, um, Pine Ridge, South Dakota, every year for the last 25 years. She also is the director of the nonprofit in the Bay Area that tries to collect money to, you know, support the medicine man who puts on the Sundance and um, all of the things that you need to actually have the ceremony. So, you know, she dances every year. She does a lot of organizing and fundraising. She has a sweat lodge at her house and the medicine man comes to her house like once a month to do um, healing ceremonies there and to run sweat lodges. And I think a few years ago, it was a few few years ago on her birthday, she emailed me and she goes, I'm doing something really special for my birthday this year. I said, oh, really, what are you gonna do? She said, Bonte G's gonna be at Spirit Rock. I'm gonna go sit. That just really moved me. Because with all of that, you know, she could see the, just how useful and how sacred this way is. 
And then the third spiritual quality that we have as a mundane quality, but has definitely been nurtured and watered and strengthened during our time together is attentive awareness. You know, we, are, we attend to things all the time. And, you know, we know it here as mindfulness. Satipatthana, which is what is needed or is a support to practice all of the eight path factors. It's one of the path factors, but it is a huge support for all of the path factors. Mindfulness is a good idea 24-7. It is, and, you know, we have to be gentle with ourselves when, you know, we, you know, when it slips, but mindfulness is one of the um, spiritual faculties and one of the seven factors of awakening that you can never have too much of. You know, the rest we're always trying to balance, but mindfulness, I don't think you can get too much mindfulness. So we love the mindfulness. And you know, we can, (laughs) right? (laughs) You're laughing like you don't agree with me. Of course you do, we love the mindfulness. Actually, you know, I was, um, I've been trying to figure out a way to, you know, I work, I'm a mixed race person, I've said that before, uh, uh, with native heritage, and I work almost exclusively with native people, and, I was circulating this, I was someplace on retreat or actually in a teacher training and circulated a, um, I think an RFA or or maybe I was letting people know that I was uh, gonna be teaching the people of color retreat here and at Spirit Rock. And um, there was wonderful group of women were on this email string, you know, people who really are incredibly well-respected in Indian country, this one woman, Dee Bigfoot, She's a professor of, um, I think she's a social work professor at University of Oklahoma, but she's incredibly well-respected. People just love her. And I said, oh yeah, if anybody wants, I'm gonna be teaching this mindfulness retreat. And she wrote back to like this, you know, string of maybe 25 people. She said, oh yeah, we had that. We have mindfulness in our community. I think she's Comanche from Oklahoma. She said, yeah, we have mindfulness. She says, we call it tending. We tend to things when we're very present. And she said, our, you know, our leaders and our spiritual medicine men and women, you know, that's one of the highest qualities that they could have is to be present, to tend to the business their own business, their family's business, and the community's business to tend. I thought that was a really beautiful expression of that. So mindfulness creates sacred space for us at any time, at any moment. You know, the Navajo people, the Diné people, have this notion of their sacred space, their land is sacred, and it's uh, marked by the four sacred mountains of their land. And for me, I think of, you know, one way for me to um, use that metaphor is, 
you know, the four points of our zabutans, the four foundations of mindfulness. They create sacred space for us at any moment. Any time we come back to that, to those four cardinal points, we're creating sacred space right there by seeing clearly. Offering, offering just reality. So that's the third spiritual power, mindfulness. The fourth is focused concentration. And we know, you know, what concentration is like in everyday life. You know, we can be concentrated on cruising the net, cruising the internet, watching television, or other things that we might do, cooking, or things that we might do. And we know that in ceremony, in when we're really, you know, tending, that our concentration builds up. Uh, one, and they said that concentration is a way to align what your energies are with what your deepest values are as well. It's, it can be a, an alignment, a focusing of where you really want to spend your time and, you know, where you want to put your efforts. So, you know, one way that this manifests for me, I'm so lucky that I actually work in a uh, research center at the University of Washington that's an American Indian Alaska Native Indigenous Research Center. And just by, you know, and we do, we work with communities. We, you know, people are really tired of having scientists come in and doing research. So they, so they won't let us do that anymore. Thank, thank gosh, they won't let us do that. And in order to engage, you know, it has to be within ceremony. So whenever we get together with our partners, we have a, we have a gift economy. There's always an exchange of gifts. There's always an intention setting at the beginning. What is our intention of working here together? You know, that's always a part of it. Just the other day, I asked one of my friends who uh, runs social services for a tribe in Washington, I said, do you want to do this research project with me? And she said, okay, yeah, I'll do that with you. She said, give me a week. And I said, really, a week? She said, yeah, give me a week and then I'll tell you. And then she sent me this like 10-page document. It was a tribal resolution saying, uh, yes, we will work with Bonnie. And then there was two pages of why they would work with me, all of you know, what they considered to be my good qualities, you know, that for the last 25 years, I've done this and that and this and that, so okay, they could you know, guess that maybe the next few years that I would continue to try to do good things. You know, it was a resolution signed by like six council members. So it was the most intentional, focused decision, you know, that you would ever want to see. But, you know, they took into consideration all these different things. You know, they cleared, you know, they have a focused effort of trying to do good for their community that, you know, takes a lot of consideration. And we do that, you know, we can do that. You know, how are we going to live our lives? You know, what ceremony and what intention do we bring to our lives when we're deciding to do this or to do that? 
that's how we strengthen that focus, that concentration in our lives. We let go of all of those things that would, you know, uh, would, um, things that we don't want to invest in. And then finally, the fifth spiritual quality that is, you know, totally in our everyday life, our mundane life that becomes stronger and takes on a certain special characteristic is the wisdom factor. Wisdom and understanding. And in this sense, it's a wisdom or understanding of the Four Noble Truths. And I know that's one thing that you have all seen. You know, it's, I mean, one of the things that we open up to is just the amount of dukkha or suffering that we have held. And it, you know, it's, it takes a lot of confidence and courage to open to all of that. Or maybe I'm wrong. Did some, did some of you not see dukkha? <laughs> did any of you see any dukkha? I think that's what we see. We open to that. And we see, you know, hopefully we also see the empty nature of the dukkha. That, you know, the dukkha is, um, you know, the second arrow is just clinging to things, thinking that they have some kind of inherent existence outside of the causes and conditions in this moment. You know, thinking that somehow they're, you know, permanent and somehow they shouldn't be happening. We should be exempt from the nature of existence. You know, when we can open to that, when we realize it's not personal and it's not even um, always existing, you know, it's, it is empty of any inherent, any inherent existence. You know, it's hard to even say that because those words don't even capture the ephemeral nature of those things as they arise. One of my um, favorite manifestations of this fifth uh, spiritual power of wisdom is the understanding or is the arising of equanimity. And I'm sure many of you have felt that as well. When, you know, all of the difficult things came up and it was like, fine, difficult, bring it. I can handle it. I have these spiritual faculties and I have, you know, a lot of resilience to hold that. And, you know, we can see its empty nature. We can see its non-self nature. And even when the bliss comes, when the bliss comes and it's like, okay, there's the bliss. And there's no clinging and trying to create an identity out of it. Seeing the, you know, even bliss itself, there's still some sense of, you know, there's got to be something a little bit more. I mean, we could be sitting in bliss and the thought can arise, I really hope I have this tomorrow. What does that mean? That means in that moment, even there's something missing from that bliss.
but we like it. <laughs> we like the bliss. So coming back to what the Buddha said about the handful of leaves, you know, we don't really need to know a lot. We need to put energy into building up our spiritual faculties. We need to do the practice. And it's so interesting how it unfolds because in my, how it's worked for me, and I, you know, I totally think that it's probably how it works for everyone, or I know it, it's not personal, is that you'll have an insight. And, you know, if you can recall that insight and, um, you know, just continue to do the practice, you see that your life starts manifesting or your values and your decisions start uh, just unfolding in a way that absolutely is in alignment with that insight. And it's not, you know, immediate. It actually comes with time. I think that's why patience and determination and perseverance are part of the paramis. You know, we do need to have patience with it. So what is this single handful that the Buddha is offering us? This is what Buddha Dasa Bhikkhu says. Nothing whatsoever is to be clung to as I or mine. To hear this phrase is to hear everything because all subjects are contained within it. Of all the things the Buddha taught, there wasn't one that didn't deal with dukkha and the elimination of dukkha. Grasping and clinging is the cause of dukkha. When there is grasping and clinging, there is dukkha. When there is no grasping and clinging, that is, being void of that, there is no suffering. The practice is to make the non-arising of clinging and grasping absolute, final, and eternally void, so that no grasping or clinging will ever return. Just that is enough. There is nothing else to do. So that's what we're cultivating here. And it's not us cultivating it. It's the path factors. We have to surrender to the beauty of that and get out of the way. Let's sit for a second. Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.